Such a joy to partner with Lazarus and Rachel. Had the privilege of our lives being woven together over 30 years and just seeing your faithfulness, the fruitfulness of your ministry. I've been there in Andola and met some of the people that they've trained, and it's a wonderful work that our church allows us to be a part of. So thank you very much. And as we're talking a bit about missions, you can pray for Pastor Patrick and for me as we're leaving on Thursday for Hyderabad, India. I've never been to India. I'm counting on Patrick to get me there and back safely because he's been there before. And we're looking forward to preaching next Sunday in a church, El Shaddai Church in Hyderabad. He and I will both be ministering the word several times. And then we'll be working with a training group of pastors there in the south central part of India who are very interested in multiplying a movement of pastors, training pastors to preach God's word with God's heart. So please pray for us. We'll be gone a week. And now please turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 18. It's a poignant chapter. In this chapter, the earthly consequences of David's sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah and Bathsheba reach their climax. Absalom, the son of David, has mounted a revolt against his own father. He has staged a coup to try to steal the kingdom away from David. And here in chapter 18, we've come to the final decisive battle that's going to determine whether the kingdom returns to David or stays under the control of Absalom, the conspirator. It's really a question of who will reign, the Christ or the Antichrist, the Lord's anointed or a counterfeit king who's stealing the hearts of the people away from their true king. But there's a tension at the heart of This chapter, because even though justice demands that the kingdom be returned to God's anointed son, King David, David's heart is longing with love for his rebellious son, Absalom. Commentators have pointed out that in this chapter, the narrator is building up an irreconcilable tension between the demands of justice and the longings of love. And listen for that tension as we hear God's word this morning. The story is so moving, I want us to hear it in its entirety. So let's worship God now as he speaks to us through his word in 2 Samuel 18. David reviewed his troops and appointed commanders of thousands and of hundreds over them. He then sent out the troops, a third under Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zariah, and a third under Ittai of Gath. The king said to the troops, I must also march out with you. You must not go, the people pleaded. If we have to flee, they will not pay any attention to us. Even if half of us die, They will not pay any attention to us because you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better if you support us from the city. I will do whatever you think is best, the king replied to them. So he stood beside the city gate while all the troops marched out by hundreds and thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, treat the young man Absalom gently for my sake. 
All the people heard the king's orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Then David's forces marched into the field to engage Israel in battle, which took place in the forest of Ephraim. Israel's army was defeated by David's soldiers, and the slaughter there was vast that day, 20,000 dead. The battle spread over the entire area, and that day the forest claimed more people than the sword. Absalom was riding on his mule when he happened to meet David's soldiers. When the mule went under the tangled branches of a large oak tree, Absalom's head was caught fast in the tree. The mule under him kept going, so he was suspended in midair. One of the men saw him and informed Joab. He said, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. You just saw him, Joab exclaimed. Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? I would have given you ten pieces of silver and a belt. The man replied to Joab, Even if I had the weight of a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For we have heard the king command you, Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for me. If I had jeopardized my own life and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have abandoned me. Joab said, I'm not going to waste time with you. He then took three spears in his hand and thrust them into Absalom's chest. While Absalom was still alive in the oak tree, ten young men who were Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. Joab blew the ram's horn, and the troops broke off their pursuit of Israel because Joab restrained them. They took Absalom, threw him into a large pit in the forest, and raised up a huge mound of stones over him. And all Israel fled, each to his tent. When he was still alive, Absalom had taken a pillar and raised it up for himself in the king's valley, since he thought, I have no son to preserve the memory of my name. So he named the pillar after himself. It is still called Absalom's Monument today. Ahimeaz, son of Zadok, said, Please, let me run and tell the king the good news that the Lord has vindicated him by freeing him from his enemies. Joab replied to him, You are not the man to take good news today. You may do it another day, but today you aren't taking good news because the king's son is dead. Joab then said to a Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed to Joab and took off running. However, Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, persisted and said to Joab, No matter what, please let me also run behind the Cushite. Joab replied, My son, why do you want to run since you won't get a reward? No matter what, I want to run. Then run, Joab said to him. So Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. David was sitting between the city gates when the watchman went up to the roof of the city gate and over to the wall. The watchman looked out and saw a man running alone. He called out and told the king. The king said, if he's alone, he bears good news. As the first runner came closer, the watchman saw another man running. He called out to the gatekeeper, look, another man is running alone. This one is also bringing good news, said the king. The watchman said, the way the first man runs looks to me like the way Ahimeaz, son of Zadok, runs. This is a good man. 
He comes with good news, the king commented. Ahimeaz called out to the king, All is well, and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. He continued, Blessed be the Lord your God. He delivered up the men who rebelled against my lord the king. The king asked, Is the young man Absalom all right? Ahimeaz replied, When Joab sent the king's servant and your servant, I saw a big disturbance, but I don't know what it was. The king said, Move aside and stand here. So he stood to one side. Just then the Cushite came and said, May my lord the king hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by freeing you from all who rise against you. The king asked the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom all right? The Cushite replied, I wish that the enemies of my lord the king, along with all who rise up against you with evil intent, would become like that young man. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber above the city gate and wept. As he walked, he cried, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, if only I had died instead of you, Absalom, my son, my son. This is the holy word of God. There's a tension here, a tension none of us can avoid in our world that is so contaminated by humanity's sin. It's the tension between the demands of justice and the longings of love. John Woodhouse captures the question sharply like this. Which principle would you prefer to prevail in human relationships? Love or justice? Most of us would probably say, well, it depends on the circumstances. There are times when we long for justice to prevail. If our daughter is raped, if our wife is murdered, if our children are suffering with lasting scars from some outrageous act that was done against them, we long for justice to prevail. But if your child grows up to become the criminal who inflicts this kind of wrong on someone else, you have a hard time letting go of the principle of love. This chapter is fraught with that tension, the tension between our longings for justice and our longings of love. In order for David's kingdom to be established and secure, justice must prevail against Absalom's rebellion. Yet, the king's heart is longing for love to prevail, even though his son deserves justice. And all our lives, we're going to be caught in this tension. Can we live in a world without justice? Can we survive in a world without love? And how will love and justice meet? 
Picture yourself in this story standing in front of that huge oak tree in verse 9. You're one of the king's soldiers. You've been fighting this battle for the king. You've been seeing your comrades dying by the hundreds and thousands. You've heard the command that the king gave to his leaders. Deal gently with Absalom for my sake. Now here you are, and there he is. His huge head of hair that he has cultivated so vainly, now caught in between the branches. He's still breathing. His eyes are riveted on you, pleading for his life. What would you do in that situation? It's kind of like one of those choose-your-own-adventure stories. If you choose justice, turn to page 53. If you choose love, go to page 70. What I want to do in this sermon is make a case for justice to prevail. Then I want to make a case for love to prevail. And finally, I want to show why having to choose one or the other will always leave us longing for a better world than the one we know and for a better king than David. So let's look first of all at the longing for justice, the case for justice. This story of Absalom's a tragic one that begins all the way back in chapter 13 where we learn that he had a half-brother named Amnon and a sister named Tamar. Amnon's heart was disgracefully seething with lust toward Tamar, his sister. Then the unspeakable happened. After Amnon violated his own sister, he hated her with a hatred that was greater than the so-called love with which he had loved her. He cast Tamar out of his presence. She put ashes on her head, and her brother Absalom knew instinctively, intuitively, what had happened to her. He said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? And from that moment on, Tamar lives as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. David, their father, knew what had happened. And he was outraged, but he did nothing. He said nothing. And all the while, he studiously ignored an active volcano that was gathering steam within his own family. Absalom wasn't saying anything either. He wouldn't talk to his brother Amnon. No harsh words, no kind words, no small talk, nothing. Inwardly, a cauldron of rage is seething inside Absalom, demanding release. And for two full years, King David was too absorbed in his own anger and grief to notice. Till one day, he foolishly gave in to Absalom. When Absalom asked for his brother Amnon to go out with him on a sheep-shearing expedition, Amnon got intoxicated with wine. And in his drunken vulnerability, Absalom commanded his servants to kill his brother. 
David's failure to execute justice provoked his son to take matters into his own hands. By the time of the time the news of Amnon's death reached David's ears, Absalom was long gone. So there's one indictment against Absalom that calls for justice. Even though this could qualify as an honor killing, it was a killing nonetheless. He's guilty of his brother's blood. But the case for justice has only just begun. In the years that followed, David was so grieved over the death of his son Amnon that he completely ignored his son Absalom. And then for another two years, after ignoring him completely for three, he allows Absalom to get a little bit closer but to stay in isolation away from the king but in the precincts of the king's palace. During that time, Absalom keeps calling Joab, David's general, and saying, let me into the presence of the king, my father. But Joab won't return any of his calls. Finally, to get Joab's attention, Absalom sets his field on fire. Another indictment against him. Another crime demanding justice. And he told Joab, I'd rather die than live like this. It's time for my father, the king, to see me. If he finds guilt in me, let him put me to death. David's heart is starting to melt. And finally, there's reconciliation, he thinks, between Absalom and himself. But too much damage had already been done. Before long, Absalom's out running a public relations campaign telling the people how much better he was than his father. He sets himself as the perfect candidate for the throne, only the throne is not vacant. David is still king. He's sitting on it. He wages a conspiracy against his own father, stealing the hearts of all the men of Israel. And this goes on for four years until the perfect moment arrives for Absalom to mount a coup against his father. A messenger comes to King David to tell him the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And David, in his humiliation, is forced to flee from Jerusalem. It says in 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, climbing the slope of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he ascended. His head was covered. He was walking barefoot. And all the people with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they ascended. As David wanders out in the wilderness, exiled from his own throne, Absalom, his son, puts his contempt for his father on display by going into a tent on the rooftop of his palace and sleeping with all his father's concubines in full view of all the people, just as the prophet Nathan had warned would happen. It was an act of brazen sexual immorality and political sedition. All of this culminates in the battle we just read about in chapter 18. A bloodletting that costs 20,000 human lives. So what do you think about the case for justice here? I find it devastatingly convincing. Absalom is guilty, guilty of murder. 
Guilty of conspiracy, guilty of incest, guilty of sedition, guilty of warmongering, guilty of treason. It's no wonder Joab is shocked when one of the men who saw Absalom caught up in that tree and left him there comes to Joab to tell him about it in verse 11. Joab exclaims, what? You saw him and you left him there alive? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? I would have given you 10 shekels of silver and a a belt. Unwilling to waste any more time, Joab takes three spears in his hand and thrusts them into Absalom's chest. And then he watches while his 10 young bodyguards pummel the life that remains out of Absalom, finishing him off once for all. Justice must be served. If the kingdom is going to return to God's anointed king, the cancer of of Absalom's treasonous mutiny must be eradicated. And yet, justice is not first and foremost on the mind and heart of King David. When it comes to his own son, the king himself isn't as thirsty for justice as he is longing for love. Longing with love. And can we blame him? What do you think? Does David have a point? Let's look at the case for love in this story. David makes that case in verse 5 when he commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, treat the young man Absalom gently for my sake. All the people heard the king's orders to all the commanders about Absalom. What's going on here? I mean, Absalom's the whole reason this nation is in the turmoil of civil war right now. He's the instigator who's requiring all these men to put their lives on the line for their king, to save his kingdom. Yet the king is telling them to be gentle to the chief conspirator who caused this war. What's that all about? It would be like the president authorizing the Navy SEALs to take down Al-Qaeda, but commanding them, deal gently with Osama bin Laden. How do you think they'd feel about those orders? Later on in the story, when the messengers are running to bring David news from the front lines of battle, it seems like all David cares about is the safety of his son, twice. In verses 29 and 32, what's the first question out of the king's mouth? Is the young man Absalom all right? What did that sting? If you were one of the soldiers who's been out to battle, seeing all these deaths around you, to hear your commander-in-chief seem more concerned about the safety of the enemy they've been fighting than he even seems to be about his own loyal army. Can you see the tension here? Yet, can we not sympathize with David's fatherly heart? What father 
can so harden his heart from loving his son that he's ready to say, go ahead, execute him. I couldn't care less. It's natural for a father to love his child, even in the face of his most heinous sin. And any parent who can bolt their heart shut and feel no love for their child, even when their child is sinning against the parent, that parent needs to ask himself, have I known anything of God's love for me? And David has already lost two sons, the baby born to Bathsheba and Amnon. He can't bear the thought of losing another. There had been a long period of separation between David and his son Absalom. But back in chapter 14, God uses a widow from Tekoa to thaw the iciness that had been in David's heart toward his son. She tells David a story that draws out his compassion. And at the heart of the story are these words. We will certainly die and be like water poured out on the ground, which can't be recovered. But God would not take away a life. He would devise plans so that the one banished from him does not remain banished. What a beautiful statement about the heart of God. The New Living Translation puts it like this. God doesn't just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. Aren't you glad that's the kind of God we have? A God who devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. That's the kind of God he is. And that's what started to thaw David's heart toward Absalom. When they finally met and they kissed, all the anger that had been in David's heart toward his son was drained dry. But I think the longing of love that's in David's heart has an even deeper source. I think it comes out of a deep sense of responsibility that David feels over the consequences of his own sins. David has known ever since the prophet Nathan confronted him back in chapter 12 that there would be long-term painful consequences in his own family for the sins he committed against Bathsheba and against Uriah. And even though the prophet Nathan assured David that the Lord had forgiven him when he repented, Nathan also made it clear that there would be dreadful effects in his own family. You remember for, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11? This is what the Lord says, Nathan told David. I am going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes. And he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. 
So even though David knows that he is forgiven, he's been watching this sad story unfolding in his own family, and his heart is inflamed with grief because he knows that at least in part, it is the consequences of his own foolish sins. The bitter seeds he had sown are now reaping a whirlwind of disaster. And that grief is intensified by the fact that David knows that Absalom has died without repentance in rebellion against the king, in rebellion against God, without hope, without God. When his infant son died in chapter 12, David grieved, but not without hope. He believed he would see his son again in a better world. He said, now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will never return to me. That was David's hope. I will go to him. We're going to live together in a better world. But David has no such hope with Absalom. It brings us to what is probably the deepest, most excruciating pain a believer in Jesus can experience. It's when we have a loved one who dies without trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we have a loved one who dies and to our knowledge has never experienced the grace and mercy that come through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I say to you, friends, there is no greater grief that a believer can bear in this world than the death of an unsaved loved one. When I think of people in Kate's and my life right now whom we love dearly, who are not yet trusting in Jesus, And when I imagine what it would be like to stand at their graveside and not have the hope of being reunited with them in the presence of Jesus in heaven, it breaks my heart. It is almost unspeakable to think of what that is like. So we long, our hearts long with love for the enemies of Christ and his cross to be reconciled to him and to become his friends. We've got this longing of love. And yet, we also find ourselves torn. We desire justice. So which principle do we want to prevail in our relationships? The principle of justice or the principle of love? Depending on where we land, that will determine whether we hear the news of Absalom's death as good news or as bad news. What is it? For the soldiers who fought on behalf of the king and his kingdom, they think they're bringing good news to King David. We see it in verse 28. Ahimeaz calls out to the king, all is well. Blessed be the Lord your God. He has delivered up the men who rebelled against my lord, the king. Undiluted good news in Ahimeaz's mind. 
Again, in verse 31, the Cushite came and said, may, the, may my lord the king hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by freeing you from all who rise against you. And friends, it is good news when God destroys the enemy who assaults his chosen king. That's good news. Dale Ralph Davis puts it starkly. He says, God gives no secure salvation to his church unless he brings decisive judgment on her enemies. We must stop praying, deliver us from evil, unless we yearn for its destruction. Otherwise, we are like a patient ready to undergo cancer surgery who pleads with his doctor to deal gently with my cancer, who urges the surgeon to get most of it, but definitely leave a tad since it is a part of me, and I would hate to lose all of it. If God's kingdom is going to be preserved, his enemies must perish. But for David, the preservation of his kingdom brings tremendous sorrow to the heart of the king. The kingdom is safe, but the king is sad. His heart recoils with anguish when it becomes clear that his son is dead. He's deeply moved. He goes up into his chamber above the city gate and he weeps profusely. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, if only I could have died instead of you. Absalom, my son, my son. The demands of justice have been meted out. God's kingdom has been preserved and has triumphed. Yet for David, his greatest triumph comes at the cost of his most tragic loss. What an awful price he had to pay. In order for his enemies to be destroyed, his son had to die. What a terrible tension. Christopher Ash put it like this. The demands of justice could only be satisfied through the shattered longings of a father's love. David is a father whose heart longs with love for the redemption of his lost son, but the demands of justice require the death of that son. And because David also shares in the guilt of his son, he's not in any position to atone for his son's sins. All he can do is wish that he could die instead of Absalom. But for David, these final words in, verse, uh, in chapter 18 are just an unrealistic cry of a grieving father. How different the news is for us today. We can rejoice that we have a Father in heaven who longs with love for his rebellious sons and daughters to return to him. And he does not just sweep us away. He devises means by which his banished ones will remain banished no longer. Though we've often been like Absalom toward our heavenly father's kingdom, he takes no pleasure in our death. 
He remains a tender and compassionate father whose heart of love breaks over our rebellion. And he's found a way to bring us back when we've been separated from him. And it's not by overlooking justice. The father sent his own son in the lineage of David and to sit forever reigning on David's throne. And Jesus, the son of David, was able to do what King David could never do for his rebellious son, Absalom. Jesus was able to die in our place and satisfy the demands of justice and simultaneously fulfill the father's longing of love for his wayward sons and daughters. Praise the Lord for that. Because Jesus became the perfect sacrifice of atonement by his blood, our Father in heaven can now be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the death of heaven's king is good news for every sinner who will repent and turn to him. Christopher Ash says this, the story of Absalom's death ends at the cross of Jesus Christ. There is a Savior who, because he has dealt with sin, can deal gently with sinners. A Savior whose Father longs to be Father to you and to me. We long to live forever in a world where there's no more tension between the demands of justice and the longings of love. And Jesus died and rose again and will return to earth to bring about that perfect world. And right here, right now, in this world of tension, you can start to experience the restoration of a relationship with the Father whose heart yearns with love for you. We sing about it when we say, what patience would wait as we constantly roam. What Father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the vilest, the weakest, the poor, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. So how can we live in light of what we've learned from this story today? Three simple lessons. Number one, be reconciled to God. The worst fate that could happen to any of you or me would be to die as a rebel against God without trusting in Jesus as the perfect sacrifice for your sins. There is a Father in heaven whose heart is longing with love for your salvation and his arms are open wide right now offering amnesty to every sinner who will lay down your weapons and who will repent and say, Oh, I run to Jesus, the king who died in my place so that I can be brought into a right relationship with the Father. Be reconciled to God. Don't let the fate of Absalom become yours. Don't die without having your sins forgiven and without trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, tremble at the earthly consequences of sin. Hear the anguish in David's heart and recognize that in this life, even forgiven sins can still sting and pardoned sins can bring lasting pain. 
Never let yourself fall into the thinking that says, oh, so we're justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from any works, and no matter what I do, I'm still going to be acceptable to God? Yes, that's true. But never think that from that truth you can say, okay, let's continue in sin, that grace may abound. Oh, no. May it never be. May it never be. God forbid. Forgiven sins may still sing, sting. The British preacher Charles Simeon put it like this, sin, though forgiven, rarely passes unpunished in this present world. On the contrary, God marks his indignation against it here in order to embitter it the more to the offender who has committed it and to endear to him the more the mercy which has been exercised toward him. Let that anguished cry of King David echo in your heart and mind any time you're tempted to think you can trifle with sin. Are you planting seeds right now that will reap a bitter harvest down the road? Today is a call to uproot them, to repent. Are you deceiving yourself, thinking it's no big deal, God will forgive Are you being reckless today with sin's consequences? Be warned. As a wise man once said, sin is never your friend. Sin is always your enemy. And finally, take comfort in God's chastisement, in God's discipline. Paul Tripp writes, The consequences of sin are not a contradiction of God's love. No, they are an expression of his love. They are there to make you hate the sins that would destroy you and to love the mercy that has delivered you. So when you're facing earthly consequences for your sins, do not despair. Jesus died to satisfy the demands of justice. You who trust in Jesus will never go to hell for your sins. But when you're facing the consequences, boldly rest in the gospel of the Lord and trust that your Father is disciplining you in love. And heed the wise admonition of Scripture that says this, Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. If you've ever read the Psalms of David, you've been blessed by that harvest of righteousness and peace. Just remember, this came through the training of the Lord's loving discipline in his life.
Let's bow before our Father together and pray.